Thank you, women of Andrews University. We needed that right now. Thank you, Christina. In the sweet by and by, we shall, that's his promise, we shall meet on that beautiful shore. We will meet Dean Esperanza. It just occurred to me a few moments ago, her name means hope. She died with that hope. We must live with it as her legacy to us. And we will meet on that beautiful, beautiful shore with Christ Jesus. How can I know that I will be on that beautiful shore? Listen carefully to this morning's teaching. It has the how-to embedded in it. Let us pray. Oh God, our hearts, for reasons tender and painful, are pinned on that beautiful shore now more than ever before. In Christ. How can we be assured of that voyage one day to that beautiful shore? Teach us. As it would occur and happen today through the life of a woman. Teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Her life was a soap opera. She lived and moved with the young and the restless. She was both young and restless. You know the type, fidgety, pretty-faced woman who can't bite her shiny, manicured nails, so she taps her well-heeled, high-heeled toe nervously. And how you women stand on those heels that high is absolutely beyond me. Unbelievable. But you do it. You go, girl. <laughs> so she stands there tapping her toe nervously. She's scanning the makeup counter. Not that she really needs any more of that pricey makeup magic. But there are always those driven souls who keep trying to make a good thing better until they finally make it worse. But as you stare into those haunted dark eyes of hers, you could swear that you have seen her face before. Picture perfect, pretty, oval face. Isn't that the face that waltzes across another one of Hollywood's chick flick sets? You've seen her face. Only this woman can't make believe that her life is make believe any longer. Oh, sure, she's got a cover girl face, but she has a covered up life. And all the neon eyeliner in the world will not be able to hide it. Truth is, this woman with the pretty face has a barren heart. Burned out into a smoldering heap of ashes from a sooty string of failed romances. It doesn't take a psychologist to quickly figure out. That what you see here is the life cycle of the young and the restless. Turned on, then burned out. Used up, then tossed out. Hollowed out until there's nothing left by that, except that wispy trail of ash. 
cover girl face, with a covered up life, young, restless, and hopeless. But today, a life that is about to become uncovered forever and ever. Amen. Though she's not praying yet at all. Unless perhaps she prays one prayer. And that's the, the prayer for a friend. Because have you noticed, the prettier, the prettier your face, the fewer your friends? Why does it work that way? Unless you want to call a friend the man she's living with now. The last word. We come again to it. The fourth gospel. Today's teaching, put it on the screen for you. Just another pretty face. There's a study guide today. Nothing to fill in. Hang on to that study guide. Every quotation you'll hear here. A little series of teaching points all there. So those of you watching on television, we're delighted to have you go to that website, www.pmchurch.tv. You're looking for the series of The Last Word. This is part seven. Just another pretty face. Click on there. You'll see study guide. It's a keeper for you as well. Let's go. We've got to go. The Gospel of John, chapter four. The fourth gospel. The fourth chapter today. John chapter 4, I'm in the New King James Version, whatever translation you have. I'm just glad you have a translation. Didn't bring a translation? Pull the one in front of you. It's in the pew rack. It's the New King James as well. We'll pick up the story. You're not a stranger to this story. So let's pick it up in verse 5. John chapter 4, verse 5. So he, Jesus, came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was the sixth hour. John's method of keeping time, probably this means this is noon. Isn't that amazing? The creator of the universe, incarnated into our human flesh, sits on the mossy lip of an ancient well, and there's no way, Jose, he can get down a hundred feet for just one sip. Of quenching water. So bound up with us, he is. Verse 7 And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. Hit the pause button right there. Why do you think she's coming at noon? Because there'll be nobody here to ignore her, there'll be nobody here to shame her, there'll be nobody here at all. The blazing noonday sun, that's why she comes. She may be the envy of every woman in the village and the desire of every man in town, but she's also the butt of every gossip as well. So there's a method to her madness coming to the well in the blaze of the noontide sun. She risked meeting nobody, which is why she catches her breath as she rounds the corner and there's a man sitting on the edge of that well, a stranger. And the man is a Jew. Double trouble for a Samaritan woman. But Jesus never says a word. He just watches her. Smiling eyes, perhaps. Gracious eyes, I'm sure. He watches the now nervous cover girl who eyes, whose eyes refuse to meet his. Quietly, she lowers her empty jar on the end of a goat's hair rope. Down 100 feet, the well still exists. Down 100 feet, she lowers her jar until both the stranger and she hear a distant splash indicating the jar has found its mark. 
when the line is taut and the jar is full, hand over hand, without a single word, she draws that jar. Now its rim glistening in the glory of the noonday sun. She draws it to the surface, unlatches the rope, picks up the jar, and is about to quietly walk away when the stranger speaks. Could I have a drink of water, please? And with that favor, there is birthed a brand new story for the young and the restless and the not so young and restless today. Verse 7. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water. And Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then, verse 9, the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. You are asking me for a drink? The woman knows that in the mind of this Jew, there are already two strikes against her. Three, really, but fortunately, the stranger doesn't know the third strike. Strike number one, she's a woman. Have not the rabbis intoned, and I quote, one should not talk with a woman on the street, nor even with his own wife, and certainly not with someone else's wife because of the gossip of men, end quote. And it was written somewhere else, quote, it is forbidden to give a woman a greeting, end quote. Strike one, she's a woman. Strike two, she's a Samaritan. The animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans was notoriously deep-rooted, festering back to the origins of when the Samaritans were a half-caste breed rejected during the days of the Assyrian Empire. The Jews had a proverb, the only good Samaritan is a dead one. Strike three, fortunately the stranger doesn't know. That she is a woman with a string of failed romances and the one she shacks up with now is not her husband. What? If he had known strike three, he never would have broached the conversation. I can't believe you're even talking to me. Keep reading. Jesus answered. Verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God. That Sabbath, were we in John 3 with the proud Pharisee Nicodemus? Remember John 3.16? For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish. If you knew the gift of God. He's speaking of Himself. And Jesus answered and said to her, verse 10, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked Him. And he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. When then did you get that living water? Verse 12, Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks, and he points down the shadowed neck of that ancient well, whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give her will never thirst. But the water that I shall give her will become in her a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. There's no mistaking him now. 
It may have sounded when he first started talking about this water metaphor that he was referring to flowing water. But now in this rapid fire sequence, Jesus pointed spiritual symbols compounding unmistakably on the lintel of her heart. Do you understand what I'm offering you? And she gets the faint overtures of something she is desperately thirsty for. But right now, her sexuality, her sociality, her spirituality are so twisted and tangled together There's no way she's going to get what he wishes to offer. I mean, socially, please, you have water that would would preclude my ever having to return to this place. And the neighborhood biddies with their gossip. Give me that water. Oh, and sexually, I can't find a man who will keep me. You have something that will go forever and ever. Give me that water. And spiritually, oh, God, I am thirsty. Give me that water. And so the cover girl face exclaims to Jesus, verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. Jesus stares into that pretty face and he knows that behind the masked pain there is a woman who will never grasp the offer of eternal life until she desperately confronts her need. And so he holds her gaze. Pretty eyes. He holds them. I want to give you that water. I want you to go home and get your husband. Bring him back with you. I'll give the both of you the water I've promised. And in that split second, like she's done a thousand times before, those mascarid eyes drop instantly to the ground. She collects herself. She's quick-witted. And she shoots it back. You're out of luck. I don't have a husband. But as she raises her eyes back now, Jesus holds the gaze. And raising His voice to the volume of one who would be a prophet, He looks into those eyes and He says, You are absolutely right. You don't have a husband. You've had five husbands. And the man you're sleeping with now is not your husband. You have said correctly. And in that instant, the sudden scarlet of blush turns ashen. And I'll tell you what, you can say this to the credit of that woman. No denial. No him on or on. You got me mixed up with somebody else. Do you know what she says? She says, you're absolutely right. And she does it by saying to him, I perceive you're a prophet. You just nailed me. But she will not linger for a split second longer if she can help it. So she pivots on that high-heeled foot of hers and dives into a dusty old theological debate that is as old as the hills. And the one who has been chasing her all her life gently tracks her now. Read it. Verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Well, since you are, I've always wanted to meet a man of the cloth. Verse 20, our fathers worshipped on this mountain. She points right here to Mount Gerizim, the holy mountain for Samaria. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, and you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. So what do you say? Jesus follows the trail. Verse 21, he says to her, woman, 
Believe me. And by the way, the Greek, the two words in the Greek are only used here in the entire New Testament in an emphatic position. Believe me. I mean, it's just, believe me. Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. Verse 22. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. You know what? That, that, that's, that's begging for a whole sermon on its own and we can't, we can't chase down that path. But I want to remind you that there are times when you can look into somebody's face and you can say to him, I have the truth. That's exactly what Jesus is saying. You don't have it, you Samaritans. We have it. Salvation is from us. I have the truth. You don't have to be haughty about it. You don't have to be snotty about it. You just say, you hold your ground. You hold your ground. No, I'm not, I'm not changing. I know the truth. I have the truth. It's right here. So he says to her, we know what we worship. For salvation is of the Jews. Verse 23. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. I tell you, I love that. I never saw that before this last week in brooding over this story. The Father is seeking. Don't you love that picture of God? He's looking for people. The Father is out seeking for men, women, and children. He's looking, hoping to find another to draw into His kingdom of worship. The Father is seeking and seeking. He's been looking for you. He's been looking for me. Have you said yes to the Father? Has He found you yet? The Father is seeking such to worship Him. Verse 24, you see, God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and truth. And I tell you what, something is happening now in in that cover girl, covered up life. That's never happened before. Something is awakening deep in the heart of the Samaritan woman. Something deep is stirring inside of her. A longing, a thirsting, a hungering, a hoping, daring to hope. And it bursts out when she responds. Verse 25, And the woman said to him, Look, I know, I know that the Messiah is coming who's called Christ. John inserts that. And when He comes, the woman goes on, he will tell us all things. We are waiting for the Messiah. I believe He's coming. I know that when He comes, my life answers have been found. We hope. And Jesus, amazing, amazing. This is the clearest statement anywhere in all the Gospels of His admission that He is the Messiah. Never again will He be this explicit. And by the way, get this. He does it to a woman who has three strikes against her. He saves it for her. And he looks into her face. You're looking for the Messiah, are you? Watch this. Verse 25. I who speak to you, and then there are two words in the Greek that translate into two words in the English. I who speak to you, I am. That's what it is in the Greek, and that's what it is in the English. I am. You want everlasting life? I am. You want water that will never run dry? I am. You're looking for the Messiah? I am He. I am. Nine times in the Gospel of John, radical fourth Gospel, comes this unprecedented claim. I am. I am the vine. I am the good shepherd. I am the way and the truth. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the water of life. I am, girl. I am what you're looking for. I am. Wow.
if only the young and the restless of the third millennium and the not so young and restless of the same millennium, if only we knew the healing truth of Jesus' quiet offer, I am the water of life. Come to me and drink. And we shall meet on that beautiful, beautiful shore. I am the Almighty. I am the I Am. Ah. Isn't it something, by the way, ladies and gentlemen? No lecture to the woman about her previous five husbands. Not a word to her about the man you're shacking up with now. Not a single word. Jesus just says, hey, come. Come on. I am what you're thirsty for. Come to me and drink my water. I am. So the, so the, the woman, bless her heart, she is so flustered now and she is so excited that she forgets that this whole conversation began because a thirsty man is longing for a drink of water and she just turns tail and runs and fortunately leaves a jar there. She races back into town and the record is very clear. She goes to the men of the city and she says to the men, come and meet a man who has told me everything I've ever done. And the record reads, and the men followed her because they're not sure what she told him and they're not sure what he knows. That's exactly right. John purposely said she went to the men and they came. I've got to check this out. What's heard on the street? Isn't that amazing? Philip Yancey, in his latest book, What Good is God? In Search of a Faith that Matters, describes a sex workers conference in Green Lake, Wisconsin, that he was invited to address. They're all Christian workers who have dedicated their lives to bringing healing to women and children who are, as you well know, are sold into the sex traffic and the sex trade of this planet. It's a tragic chapter that we all choose to ignore. But they're men and women, Christians, who say we will minister to those. Wretched human beings, by the way, who yet long for cleansing and freedom. So, Yancey, before he addresses the entire conference, has some time alone with just the women. I'm going to read what he writes. I shifted uncomfortably in my seat. The only man in a room full of women, I was hearing horrifying stories of male cruelty and exploitation. Before today, I had never met a prostitute and now dozens surrounded me. Some were gorgeous, the kind you see glamorized on television shows set in Las Vegas. Some were plain looking and some shown signs of a rough life on the streets, missing teeth, scars, bad complexion. They talked about the sex acts matter-of-factly as a car salesman might talk about tires or sunroofs. What had I got myself into? Later that evening, in his address to an auditorium of prostitutes and Christian workers, Yancey makes a single point, and I want you to get this point. It's just... May it stay with you and me forever. He opens his address by telling about a friend of his named George. The man lives in Chicago. George was reared a Mennonite. We have a Mennonite community not far from us. Who also, by the way, suffered a tragic death just this week. With their biology professor. So he, he tells about this, this, this friend of his named George living in Chicago who was reared a Mennonite and a pacifist, but who in his rebellion to his childhood and his parents enlisted in the army and fought in the Vietnam War. 
Then after the war, he settled in the Windy City. He ran a rather small bookstore. He chain-smoked, became an alcoholic, was a bisexual, with liaisons with both males and females. One night, George is channel surfing on his television when he comes across a choir singing, Just as I am, without one plea. And something about that moment draws George in. He stays glued to this to the television screen, staring as, as men and women are coming forward until a film of tears soon covers his eyes. George tells Yancey the story. And I'm going, put, I'm going to put George's words on the screen now because I need you to catch this. Watch this. Philip Yancey writing, George said to Yancey, that night I fathomed for the first time the truth that God loves me just as I am. Everybody else loves me with strings attached. I disappoint my family because I've never realized my potential in school, in career, whatever. I disappoint my church in my decision to fight in a war and in my personal behavior. I disappoint my friends and doctors in the way I treat my health with cigarettes and drinking and poor diet. I am poor, fat, ugly, and soon old. Only God loves me just as I am. Isn't that something? Only God loves me just as I am. And then Yancey makes the point that I hope, Dwight, don't you ever forget this as long as you live. From my friend George, I learned that grace, like water, flows downward. That line is so significant, I want to lock it in front of your eyes for a moment. Will you put it on the screen, please? Grace, like water, flows downward. The farther down you are, the farther down grace goes. Until a woman with three strikes, her gender, her race, her fallenness, stands before Jesus. And He offers her the water of life that lasts forever. How did George put it? I'm poor, fat, ugly, and soon old. Only God loves me just as I am. Even so, Jesus loved that Samaritan woman just as she was. Grace, like water, flows downward. Now look, guys. Look, look. I understand. Jesus loved her just as she was. He didn't leave her just as she was. Pick up the ending of the story, verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in Jesus... Because of the the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So, verse 40, when the Samaritans had come to Jesus, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there for two days. He sat under their roofs. He ate at their tables. There's a whole other sermon there that we'll bypass. With the hated Samaritans, he was one with them. He stayed there two days, verse 41, and many more believed because of his own word. Then they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard Him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. The end. Isn't that amazing? From them, the confession. He is. You are the Savior of the world. Now look, right here, right here, the road forks. I debated about doing one fork in one service and one fork, one side of the fork in the other service. But you know what? I'm going to, uh, I decided to do them both. The road forks right here. Because if you look at Jesus, there's a compelling 
there's a compelling truth we must not miss. Let's just look at Jesus for a moment. When you look at Jesus, did you catch that a moment ago? That when He is alone with that woman, He says not a single word about her five failed marriages. Not a single word about her sleeping with a man who doesn't even belong to her. Not a single word. Isn't that amazing about Jesus? When He has time alone with you, He doesn't bring up your past. He doesn't rub it in your face. He doesn't even bring it up. Instead, He says, I know you're thirsty. I can tell. Come to Me. I'll slake that thirst. And I'll fill you with what you're longing for. Isn't that beautiful about Jesus? I mean, do you find that beautiful? Let me hear an amen if you find it beautiful. I mean, come on, guys. There it is. Not a word. Can you find a word? Not a word. I want those of you that feel that when you meet a sinner, it is a part of your Holy Spirit duty to remind that sinner where the sinner has fallen. I want you to notice the example of Jesus, please. Because sometimes we think that we're doing God a great service when we say, okay, now, I don't know if he knows this is wrong, so I'm going to say it in just the right way so that before this visit is over and he gets off the plane, he knows that's not the way to live. And we think that we become ambassadors of the Holy Spirit and we do the convicting ourselves. When the God of the universe is alone with a woman who has five reasons plus one to spend some time talking about her past, not a single whisper. Not a word. My friend, listen. When you meet a sinner, don't focus on the sins. Point the sinner to the Savior. That's the point. It's not rocket science. That's what you do. Jesus did it. He could have gone the other way. He says, no. He said, Dwight, I can't do that. I can't offer anybody water and they'll not get thirsty again. Oh, yes, you can. It's not you anyway. It's never been about you and me. What you say is, hey, listen, girl. Hey, listen, boy. I had that same struggle. I had that same thirst. And one day I met Jesus. And I'm telling you the gospel truth. He has, he has quenched my thirst again and again. You're not calling people to believe in you. You're simply pointing them to the one who is. I am the water of life. Point them to Jesus. Point them to their Savior. Don't point them to their sins. Point them to their Savior. Be just like Jesus. And you'll get it right. And by the way, you say, well, I, can, can, I, can I show anything? Sure. What you model is a life that slakes its thirst in Christ. You just model a life that drinks of Jesus every day. When you model that, people get it just like that. Ah, that's the way I want to live. You don't have to be preachy about it. Just say, hey, here's what I go to Jesus every day. So that's fork one. If we, if we focus on Jesus, that's fork one. But if we focus on the woman, here's the other fork. Whenever we talk about our sexuality, isn't this true? Feelings of guilt are prone to arise. Whether we're single or married. Whether we're young or old whether we're religious or secular, the moment somebody starts talking about sexual purity, boom, there it comes again. I got a letter from a student in this university, an anonymous letter. Let me read a few lines to you. Dear Pastor, I wish I could shout it out so many of the fellow students on campus could hear. 
please, stay away from sex until you are within the protective, loving boundaries of marriage. It hurts so much to realize that everything you could experience with your wife, or I would add, or husband, in every God-inspired, imaginable way you have already done with someone else, or a variety of people for that matter. What we watch on the screen, for example, teaches us that sex is fun and promiscuity is acceptable and can be a happy occasion. Wrong. All caps, by the way, in his letter. Wrong. I found and firmly believe that God implanted a law in every human heart that we violate every time we enter through the gates of life prematurely. I have yet to meet the person who can tell me that having had sex with a person he or she is not wedded to was an enriching experience. Wow. And were this anonymous letter to end right here, it would remain a bleak commentary on all the all-too-familiar life of this planet. Who here is a stranger to such shorn hopes and broken dreams? But the unknown student ends his letter with the blush of new hope. And I, I want to read this. God forgives, he goes on. And I can now forgive myself. However, the scars are still there. And it will take time to heal. The scars stay. And the barren, empty well of God-given sensuality. Don't you love that metaphor? He didn't know it, but it fits perfectly here. The barren, empty well of God-given sensuality takes time to fill back up. I would urge all to think and go for the unparalleled long-term reward that is awaiting them. End quote. An anonymous letter about our anonymous struggle with the thirst embedded in our sexuality. Where do we turn to get that thirst quenched? Huh? Where shall we turn? Scholars tell us that embedded in this narrative is the story of Calvary. Let me prove it to you. Let me just run this by real quick. Clue number one. Calvary's here. Clue number one. Notice verse six. Look at verse six. It says it was the sixth hour. Do you know that the only other place in the Gospel of John where those words, the sixth hour, are recorded is the time of Christ's crucifixion. That's clue number one. Clue number two. Notice verse seven. What does Jesus say to the woman? Give me a drink. The only other time in this Gospel Jesus will speak those words is from the cross when he says, I thirst. Clue number three. Notice verse 21. Jesus uses a strange, the strange vocative woman. Why would you say woman? He speaks that word from Calvary when he addresses his mother. And finally, clue number four. Notice verse 14. Jesus speaks about a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. This is the same Jesus who from his side there flowed a fountain of water and blood for the salvation of the human race. Embedded in the story of the woman of Samaria is the narrative of Calvary itself. How do I get my thirst slaked? You go there. You go there. A fountain to cleanse our souls and water to quench our thirst. It's all wrapped up in the Savior of the world whose grace like water always flows downward to where you and I are waiting. 
How do I accept this offer and drink deeply? Let me end with this quotation. I put it on the screen for you. You have it in your study guide. Keep your study guide today. Jesus did not. This is Desire of Age. It's a classic on his life. Jesus did not convey the idea that merely one draft of the water of life would suffice, would be sufficient for the receiver. No, 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 no. He who tastes of the love of Christ will continually long for more, but he seeks for nothing else. The riches, the honors, the pleasures of the world do not attract him now. The constant cry of his heart is, more of you, please, more of you. And he who reveals to the soul its necessity is waiting to satisfy its hunger and thirst. Every human resource, trust me, girl, trust me, boy, every human resource and dependence will fail. The cisterns or wells will be emptied. The pools will become dry. But our Redeemer is an inexhaustible, inexhaustible fountain. Hallelujah. Our Redeemer is an inexhaustible fountain. We may drink and drink again and ever find a fresh supply. He in whom Christ dwells has within Himself the fountain of blessing, a well of water springing up into everlasting life. And from this source we may draw strength and grace sufficient for all our needs. Amen. Isn't that a great promise? That's your promise. That's my promise. All we need to do now is connect a prayer with a promise. And here's the prayer. Pray it every day for the, for the rest of your journey this year. Pray it every day. These are the words of Richard Blanchard. Here's your prayer. I'm gonna, it's on your study guide. You can put it where you worship. Every day you may pray this prayer. Let me read. The, the prayer begins with these words. Maybe you've heard these words before. Like the woman at the well, I was seeking for things that could not satisfy. And then I heard my Savior speaking, draw from my well that never shall run dry. Come on, say the words out loud with me if you know that, if you know that chorus. Fill my cup, Lord. I lift it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Fill my cup. Fill it up and make me whole. Isn't that a beautiful prayer? Keep that little study guide. Put it where you, where you have your worship every day. Pray the prayer. Fill my cup today, Jesus. Fill it to the full with you. Let's stand and sing that. Let's stand and sing it. We'll put the words on the screen for you against the panoply of Calvary. And let's sing like the woman at the well.